How do we improve our lives and our society through a better understanding of political fantasy and illusion? Welcome to The Hub for Important Ideas. I'm Steve James. And I'm Ken Swain. In this episode, we discuss political fantasy and illusion. And, as always, possibilities for hope. We're going to play for you another interview we conducted with Dr. Jerry Piven. Jerry Piven, Ph.D., teaches in the Department of Philosophy at Rutgers University. Three of his most notable books are Slaughtering Death, on the Psychoanalysis of Terror, Religion, and Violence, The Psychology of Death in Fantasy and History, and Death and Delusion, a Freudian Analysis of Mortal Terror. In the past decade, he has published over 50 papers, and he is currently working on a book to be titled Pious Massacre, Literary Violence from Dostoevsky to Mishima, and an edited collection called Death, Religion, and Evil. And he is also a shameless fan of Star Trek. And proves it once again in this interview. Yes, he does. <laughs> Here's the interview with Dr. Piven. So, Jerry, welcome back to the Hub for Important Ideas. Thank you so much for being our guest once again. Yeah, thanks so much. Hello, Jerry. Hey, Ken. Thank you once again for coming back to see us. I've been loading up with questions, and I'm going to start. I've, I've been listening a lot to Yuval Noah Harari, who's a, a favorite uh, public intellectual for me. And he maintains that in a democracy, almost all political decisions are not made rationally. When we spoke a few weeks ago, you referred to Drew Weston, who wrote The Political Brain, who probably said it first in 2007. How do you respond to that notion? Yeah, well, there. There's just a, some scary research on, out there that shows how, not only how irrational we are, but how even our conscious sense of rationality and reason may be sort of an afterthought. Not exclusively, not entirely, but Weston demonstrated just how much political decisions are not only non-rational, but that they are based uh, in a, a very dynamically non-rational part of the psyche. And uh, there are other thinkers like Jonathan Haidt who demonstrate pretty convincingly and upsettingly how a lot of what we consciously think is a post-hoc rationalization for decisions that have already been made before we're consciously aware of them. And what's really scary again about Weston's political brain is that He's demonstrating that when you talk to people by using rational arguments, you're not reaching the same part of the brain as you are when you use the right kind of imagery and the right kind of technique of, again, hitting a different part of the brain. So this really undermines our sense of rationality, but also our sense of free will. I consider, for instance, the 2004 study, Landau study where the terror management people experimented on support for Trump. Right? Now, of course, all of their studies manifest this in some way. But it would be one thing to say that mortality, salience, inductions, the fear of death, may stimulate people to support a particular candidate. In this case, it was G.W. Bush. But what's really, really disturbing about that study is that it demonstrates that stimulating the fear of death can also goad 
normally, ordinarily, democratically-minded people who think that Bush is a verbally dyslexic idiot to start supporting his policies. Now, that's, that's really scary. Because it means as much as we like to think, I'm a rational being, I know what I think, I have control over my thoughts, my thoughts are not sort of randomly determined by various things I'm unaware of or fears of death or anything like that. I'm a rational human being. And I think this about Bush or Clinton or anyone else because of that rationality intelligence, but that if triggered unconsciously by a few mortality salience inductions, I can actually start to believe the very same nonsensical, violent, military inanity that I formerly thought utterly repugnant before. And at that time, 2004, Mm -hmm. George W. Bush was talking about orange alerts and playing on 2001 as he was going to save us from this reign of terror that the Muslims were going to bring on us. That's right. And though most of the time, some of us think, oh, we can see through that, we can peer through the political rhetoric, we can recognize that mendacity and all of the ludicrous policies, and we find them repugnant because we're good moral people and all that sort of stuff. We're rational, scientifically minded and all that. But these studies are demonstrating that, again, just with a few stimuli, we could start to believe that the very same material we excoriated as, as ludicrously repugnant before. And that utterly calls into question not only our rationality, but our very free will. It calls into question what we think and why we think it. And so whether we're talking about Harari or uh, Weston and his political brain or the Terra Madden stuff, I mean, this fundamentally calls into question any notion of free will and any notion that we have control over our thoughts or that our thoughts have been arrived at through rational decision making. Yeah, like hate you brought up, Boy, this Jonathan. Is, hate. This is a really scary. It really, this but is a really scary. Notion. But we had talked about wow. this. Wow. But Ken and I had talked I about know. this in a past episode when we talked about Jonathan Hate, and we're looking at and Hate is saying, or Height, however you want to pronounce it, he's saying, well, there are the conservative and the liberal brain, or you know, orientation, however you want to describe it, using these fundamental values that all humans share, but share in different degrees. So you're saying, well, then you've made your decision when you woke up that morning, and then you found the reasons, the evidence to support the decision. And then you tell yourself that you made the decision because of the evidence that you're now finding to support your decision. And of course, as we've also talked about in this this podcast, the social media rewards you with that evidence because it knows what you're looking for. And so if you Google a term and somebody on the other side of the country Googles the same term, you get one response and they get a different one. So none of this is rational anymore. Not that it ever was, but it's scary how unrational it is. Yeah. And let's not pretend that people can't be rational. Say again, Ken. It, it seems to have the ability to topple the whole republic. Uh, yeah, I mean, you're it, it undermining should. things that people that people really need to believe in. Well, that's another specific thing. When you talk about what people need to believe in, that in of itself is reflective of the particular kind of inner agony and despair and 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 misery and so forth. It's not like everybody can be goaded with the same fantasy because we're all irrational and driven by unconscious death fears. We are still characterologically very, very different. 
So first of all, let, let's not assume that this means people are incapable of rational thought. And to talk about people being irrational or even pathological, as we did before, doesn't mean that people are equally pathological or identically pathological and that they're only pathological. It means we have to have enough humility to recognize that we're not nearly as rational or in control of our thoughts than we think or would like to believe. But it also doesn't mean that if Hitler decided to go attend a Hadassah meeting, that he could convince all of the people in the synagogue to support him in seven seconds flat. It, again, what people believe will reflect so much about what they've lived and what becomes meaningful to them and what taps into their particular kinds of needs and fantasies, what resonates with them. So, of course, it is terrifying, especially when we deny that these things are happening, that we deny that we're irrational and we keep fantasizing that we're in utter control of our thoughts and that all of our thoughts must, of course, be logical, which they're not. Perhaps the way into that and to doing something about that is to recognize what kinds of things trigger us without our admitting them. Well, Ernest Becker, who we all have read and, and studied and, and discussed over the years, he wrote extensively about fantasy and illusion. And we like to believe that we are in sole possession of the truth. Everyone will agree with, and that the very act of perception is fundamentally subjective. So to cope with death anxiety, we have to have illusions to function. And the late, great Neil Elgy said, I know I need illusions. I'm not blind to the fact. What I'm looking for are the best illusions I can find. So what do we mean by a good illusion? All right, this is so problematic. Right, Because I love what Neil said, and it was so humble of him, so, so emblematic of his character. And it reminds me of something that Ronnie Leifer said to me years and years ago, when we were talking about Becker's stuff and the idea of transference as a solution to the problem of death. And Ronnie said, look, we all know we're going to fall into various kinds of illusions. We know that there are going to be some, so we might as well find the most humane, constructive, loving illusions we can. Now, the problem here is that if Becker is right, that we are succumbing to these illusions, right? Because we don't have control over these illusions. These illusions are formulated by our deep existential needs. If indeed we are self-deceiving, if indeed we have illusions and even delusions, then part of the problem is we're not in control of what we believe. We don't know why we believe it. We think it's reality, and we can't just control it. And since we are self-deceived, since we are succumbing to that irrationality, then it's very difficult for us to say, I am therefore rationally going to choose the most life-affirming illusion I can find. Because if we are being self-deceptive, then it's very, very difficult for us to rationally know what is actually going to be life-affirming instead of potentially harmful to others. Wow. In fact, I mean, <laughs> even as Becker wrote, right, didn't Becker write an escape from evil? that almost all of the evil ever committed has been committed by people who are trying to eradicate evil. So That's his most, I think, his most brilliant observation. I love that book. Yeah. yeah. So, so here's the problem then. They think they're eradicating evil. They think they're doing something good. And when we look around at all the evil committed on the planet, whether it's committed by the people I talked about previously when right, I talked about Elsa Dawi's mother thinking that clitoridectomy is necessary for her daughter, no matter how traumatic, 
or whether we're talking about American interventions in other countries and displacing leaders and things like this or dropping atomic bombs, or whether we're talking about genocidal practices where, again, contaminated people or evil people are being destroyed. Again, very seldom, quote, evil people, mustache twirling villains. And I get this, of course, from the famous philosopher Jean-Luc Picard. So, um, so, um, (laughs) (laughs) well, we we, we look, um, you know, Becker used to get great ideas from Jules Pfeiffer as a cartoonist. So I don't see why, you know, a fictional Star Trek character shouldn't give us insights as well. What do you mean fictional? All right. (laughs) Oh, okay. (laughs) All right. So anyway, my, my point here is that very seldom do we have people saying, yeah, I'm doing this. It's evil. I don't care. It's fun. Not that there aren't people ever like this and especially watching enough of the of the stuff going on on the American political floor right now gives me an idea that some people clearly know and don't care. But aside from that, as Becker would say, most people don't seem to realize what they're doing is evil. They're adamantly convinced that they're doing something that's absolutely necessary. And you have people who are murdering, slaughtering, coercing, destroying, depriving other people of autonomy in the name of some kind of goodness, patriotism, religiosity, uh, the name of God, right? How much violence has been committed in the name of God as if people were doing something not only necessary, but sacred. This is why Nietzsche could say that God's only excuse for all of this violence is that God doesn't actually exist. So it's not his fault. So the thing is, very seldom are we aware of this and are capable of being rational. So when people will say, like, like again, Ronnie Leifer or Neil, uh, LG saying, I know I need illusions, but I'm not blind to the fact I'm looking for the best illusions I could find. Well, that kind of humility gives me some confidence that they might actually find certain very humane illusions. But by definition, we are again responding to the dread of death and insignificance and helplessness and deceiving ourselves, which means it's very difficult to be rational about it or to know when we're being constructive or destructive. Again, all of those historical events, genocides, coercions, enslavements, inquisitions, and crusades and all that sort of stuff all the genocides, all the massacres, people think they're doing the right thing. So how are we supposed to know that we're choosing something that is actually right? Well, okay, we could hypothetically have a checklist where we say, okay, I'm not going to abuse any children. I'm not going to deprive anybody of rights. All right, I'm not going to molest anybody. or I'm not going to assault anybody with a beer bottle. You can have a list that's less ludicrous than what I just said. But again, the fact that you are, as Becker said, in a transference and you are in some, not only an illusion, but a delusion means that you can't possibly be rational and you can't choose to be rational over it. If we're lucky, we're only fooling ourselves to such a mild degree that we have some modicum of rationality, but there's no guarantee of that. And that's the problem. We can't console ourselves with the guarantee that we're going to be rational or that we're not going to do something that is immensely harmful that we're going to justify with some sort of self-deception. If you've seen the documentary, The Family, I don't know if you're familiar with that one, it chronicles the fundamentalist religious involvement in the government, U.S. government, and they promote the annual prayer meeting, which is bizarre for a country that claims there's a separation of church and state. But they've been engaged in this for a long time, and their position is, this fundamental Christian position, is that God works through flawed vessels, imperfect vessels, like David. Oh, that's in, right. I remember this. Right. David in the Bible, right? He was, 
he was an imperfect vessel, but God worked through him. Okay. So they look at Trump and they say, well, he, he's flawed, but he is God's choice to lead us in certain ways, abortion being a major one. God put him there so that he would bring the right people to the Supreme Court. And so they'll put up with his lies, his pussy grabbing, his misogynist, xenophobia, all of these flaws, because God has willed it. So that's the ultimate rationalization. No matter what this person is about, it could be the next Hitler. It doesn't matter because God put him there for a reason, and we know the reason. Okay, well, let me just uh, give a few preparatory remarks about this, Steve. I'm sorry. <laughs> there, there's, there's an old essay that Freud wrote on Dostoevsky's brothers Karamazov, and he says that it doesn't really matter who killed old Karamazov in the novel because everybody wanted to. <laughs> and what he means by this, right, is that when you talk about people putting up with Trump or tolerating his pussy-grabbing, misogynistic, racist, calumnious uh, nonsense, et cetera, et cetera, are they putting up with it? Or on some level, might they be identifying and agreeing with it, even though they would disavow it? It's almost like it's an act of apophatic speech or paralypsis where people say they're going to disavow something. That's the rhetoric they use to deny the possibility that maybe they're getting something out of it. And that's the kind of thinking you'll find in somebody like Zizek, who says, look, let's stop talking about few bad apples falling from the tree and this being anomalous behavior. Let's not say that this is an aberration. What if it's sort of surreptitiously built into the entire fantasy process? Now, I'm not accusing everybody who supports Trump of being this way, but when you have somebody who is so grotesquely misogynistic and so grotesquely racist and dishonest and manipulative and destructive and exploitative and parasitic, so grotesquely. One wonders, is it really possible that somebody is just sort of overlooking it or rationalizing it or giving excuses? Is it also possible that on some level, maybe they're identifying with it? It's just a question. And as far as fulfilling God's will and being an imperfect vessel and so forth, I have to bring this back to Kant of all people, right? And I don't like to talk about Kant all that often, guys, just because, yeah, I don't necessarily want to represent him or be a deontologist or anything like this. But in the end of his book, Religion Within the Limits of Reason Alone, Kant has this really kind of fascinating passage where he talks about not having apodictic proof that would enable a person to really rest comfortably with the idea that God is actually talking to them. How do you know that God is using Trump as a vessel or anyone else for that matter? How do you know that God is talking to you? How do you know that this is what God wants? How do you know it's not something else? How do you know it's not some sort of demonic force or uh, Q or the flying spaghetti monster? <laughs> you don't have apodictic knowledge enough to say, I know for sure. And this is what is so problematic about it, that some people, they don't want that kind of proof. They don't need it. They're already receptive to it. It's the danger of Kierkegaard's teleological suspension of the ethical. Now, let me explain that just for a second, just because otherwise people are going to have a stroke or 
be confused <laughs> okay. or go get a cup of coffee, right? When Kierkegaard talks about the teleological suspension of the ethical, he's talking about the way in which the person of faith can only appeal to that faith rather than anyone else's guidance or opinion to know what God wants. And that one, therefore, in faith would be capable of sacrificing one's own child the way Abraham was willing, or Abram before he became Abraham, was willing to sacrifice his own child. Now consider the the horrible danger, right? What Kant was writing was sort of a reaction to just the, the horrible possibilities that Kierkegaard was outlining. Kierkegaard never clearly imagined that people might do all sorts of horrific stuff in the name of God. He thought faith was something unique and individual and based in Christian love. But Kant is going to say in response to this, no, you don't know that. And the problem is that you can then believe all sorts of voices, again, from the flying spaghetti monster to your own demented figments, and are capable of committing all sorts of acts from inquisitions to crusades to genocides on the basis of your faith. So the problem is here, you can't know. And when people claim that kind of knowledge, well, what are they actually saying? Is it really the case, Steve, that people are just sort of believing what seems to be the case? Do they just have faith? Is it they have faith in what's being said as though the trust is what's responsible for their ardor and their dogma and their conviction and their willingness to put up with any kind of atrocity? Really? Why is their faith not responding to all of the hostility and misogyny and racism and, and all the bigotry and manipulation? Why is their faith not responding by saying, there's something fundamentally wrong here. There's something fundamentally unchristian about this. This person is the devil. There has to be a, a kind of wish fantasy involved, not only in what that person is doing, but their desperate need for this person to fulfill that divine role. And that, again, is, is terrifying. And it suggests that maybe this is not just them, again, tolerating what somebody is doing by because that person is imperfect. But maybe in that sense, it's an act of ventriloquism. <laughs> okay. And, and <laughs> yeah. by that, I mean, again, people can use God as their own personal sock puppet. And theologians from time immemorial have talked about fulfilling the will of God. And that when they, even though God may, uh, like Anselm says, even if God says we can't commit violence, if we do, it's really God working through us. And this kind of maneuver, this kind of rhetorical maneuver among theologians that violence is wrong, but when we do it, it's God working through us is a kind of puppetry. It's a kind of sock puppetry and ventriloquism in which people are amplifying their own narcissism and pretending that it's not their own hostility and aggression and ambition that are working through them to make these things happen. So one needs a kind of hermeneutics of suspicion when trying to understand how people can put up with this or not see what Trump is doing or tolerate him as a flawed being. There's more going on psychologically than just people willing to put up with an imperfect creature. I think that's an excellent point because the tendency among the liberals, the Democrats, the pundits was to say, well, all Trump supporters are idiots. And you hear that. You'll hear that in ordinary conversation. Well, they were all fools. And then, of course, he got 10 million more votes than the last time. And you say, they're not all idiots. Some of them are highly educated. Some of them are very well-to-do. Some of them are pillars of their communities. 
but your explanation is, well, this is a very normal human thing to do, to have illusions, fantasies, to make even a person like Trump fit into what you think the universe should be doing or who, who should be leading us or whatever it is. Yeah. And it, it, by the way, let's not pretend that only those people are doing that kind of stuff as if we're somehow immune to this, because again, we're the rational, scientific, liberal, intelligent <laughs> types, right? Yeah. I mean, we have not, I wouldn't say the same, but, but we have our own propensities to fool ourselves and to succumb to various kinds of fantasies and illusions. So let's not pretend there weren't various kinds of fantasies and denials and and irrealities when it comes to any of the Clintons or Obama or anyone else. And so, again, I'm not saying they're identical because people tend to constellate those fantasies very differently depending on their life experiences and their traumas and all that sort of stuff. And people aren't equally pathological and equally projective and equally dependent on salvific leaders and so forth. But yeah, we have to have a kind of humble respect for the human propensity to succumb to those kinds of things. And to be able to recognize, again, that this is a human, all too human kind of thing. Now, if you actually talk to supporters of any particular leader, Trump supporters or Clinton supporters or whomever, yeah, you'll find that they're human. And some of them are belligerent and self-righteous, and some of them may seem ignorant, and some of them are in denial about scientific reality, but some of them also are profoundly concerned for human well-being and have a very different perspective from you on how to solve these problems. Now, again, it gets complicated because when you talk to a person who's very human, but believes something that you find objectionable, it's very tempting to excoriate them and belittle them and call them stupid or ignorant or something like this. But again, you talk to a human being and you find, oh, wow, this person may radically see differently for me, but that doesn't mean they're inherently pathological or, or wicked or depraved or homicidal or something like this. On the other hand, we can learn something from the way in which people then rationalize a particular policy. So let's say for the sake of argument, it's not just some despicable, chitonic dictator or something like this. Let's say that somebody else, maybe whom we admire, has a policy about immigrant children that we find repugnant. How do we rationalize it? Do we pretend it's not happening? Do we say it's deserved? Do we find ways of giving all sorts of excuses or, and again, scotomizing, not seeing what's happening? We have to be very careful about not only how we see other people, but how we fall into these seductions of rationalizing and creating our own illusions. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and it's, again, it's all too seductive to just consider the opponent some sort of malignantly moronic evil and putz incarnate and all that sort of stuff. So, yeah, we may find that there's some very, to use the phrase, what did he say? Very fine people. <laughs> right? no, I, on both uh, sides yeah. yeah both sides i would hate to use that phrase but indeed there are people who might have incredibly obnoxious uh, political opinions who are incredibly human but also incredibly susceptible to various kinds of self-deceptions and it doesn't help things to treat them as uh, imbeciles on the other hand there are also people who again as sheldon solomon uh, showed in various forms of research and talks that people, again, do identify with different kinds of candidates and policies because of different psychological constellations. And they respond differently to evidence and to contrary ideas and so forth. If you remember, when Sheldon was giving a talk at Skidmore and suggested, I think, something to the effect that conservatives tend to score higher on scores of 
conspiratorial thinking and authoritarianism, the response from the young Republicans on campus was to graffiti the doors, not just his door, but of course, graffiti the doors of minority faculty members, right? So their response to scientific evidence was to then engage with no sense of irony in paranoid, accusatory, xenophobic behavior, after which Sheldon wrote on his own door, thank you, future fascists of America. Right. Right. So um, this is kind of comically ironic, but at the same time demonstrates how easy it is for us to fall into sort of these defensive reactions and illusions and responses to conflict and so forth. So, yeah, maybe we need enough humility to see humanity in the other, but also wariness to see how potentially dangerous people can be. And by the way, Steve, you and Ken both alluded to this earlier when you talked about wokeness and cancel culture. Right. Right. Absolutely. Because. As humane as many people may be, some of them succumb to a kind of authoritarianism and hostility and turning identity into a kind of weapon, as I think this thinker Murray had said in one of his books, whereby they themselves can become so malicious and authoritarian and hostile such that they see themselves as the good guys and as the only enlightened people entitled to then punish, cancel, excoriate, ridicule, shout down their opponents who on a Manichaean level become emblematic of utter evil and stupidity that should be punished and canceled away. Unfortunately, humility is in short supply on both sides of the political spectrum. And we're living in a, in a difficult time. We're going to take a short break. We've been having a terrific conversation, and yet another terrific conversation with Dr. Jerry Piven. We're talking about political fantasy and illusion. And don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. We're having a terrific conversation with psychologist Jerry Piven. We're talking about political fantasy and illusion. And Ken, you had a question. Yeah, we wanted to talk about Trump a little bit more and how you see the Trump phenomenon. Was Trump responding to fundamental problems in our society? And if so, was he doing it consciously, unconsciously, by trial and error, or by accident? Well, that's that's an interesting question. Can because responding, yes, I think to the extent that he saw it as a an opportunity, not responding in the sense that he actually wanted to solve anything. Mm, yeah. There's, I think, very little evidence that he has any capacity for empathy or empathic concern or concern for genuinely solving problems. I mean, he doesn't or didn't listen to, to briefs and didn't pay attention to scientific evidence. Rather, he he ridiculed anybody with actual scientific knowledge or experience who didn't say what he wanted the person to say and had any number of opportunities to actually try to resolve real problems, but focused instead on self-aggrandizement or or giving his friends opportunities and tax breaks. And so he was responding to the extent that he thought he could either profit personally or manipulate other people who had various serious problems by pretending to be interested in 
addressing them. I mean, he could hug a flag and he can throw a, a, a container of paper towels at people. But in terms of actually resolving a problem, either he was just grossly incompetent and or really fundamentally uninterested, or is that disinterested in trying to resolve the actual problem. So I'm not sure if there's any evidence that he had the five-minute attention span to actually focus on a particular policy that would actually help anybody, although he certainly claimed to. So when you say responding, when you say respond, it's, it's almost like, you mean, is he actually addressing those problems or responding in the sense that he knows that there's a problem that can be exploited? This question gives Trump too much credit. Yeah, yeah. maybe. Uh, but at the same time, 75 million people turned out to vote for him. How did all these people find him so glorifying? Why do some of us believe what others of us see as nonsense? It boggles the mind to think that, okay, in 2016, he bamboozled a lot of people. And he was responding to genuine problems that existed in our society that the Democrats had never addressed. And so people voted for Trump in desperation. I never questioned anybody voting for Trump in the first place. If they said, I know he's got problems and all, but I'm going to take a chance. But then after four years, 10 million more people voted for him. 75 million people, the most votes of any candidate that has ever run for president except Joe Biden. What is it about him they found so glorifying? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question, Stephen. It's not like I could really answer this, but certainly there were people who really did glorify and, and, and worship and idealize Trump. But we have to understand, I mean, what does it mean to really glorify and idealize somebody, right? There's an incredible fantasy content there. And I have tried to talk to people that, well, what, you know, maybe I'm wrong about this. I mean, genuinely concerned. Maybe I'm not seeing something. I don't know every single policy decision. And I wasn't there when these things needed to be resolved. And we can hear all sorts of things from the media that could be distorting. For all I know, I'm ensconced in my own self-deceptive, malicious delusion or what have you. It's possible. I genuinely believe that. So as you know, I like to ride around on my bicycle and I was riding up through the orchards of Conklin and I saw some signs people had put up saying Trump saved America. And right. I started thinking, well, what did he save them from? What did he do that saved them? Save them from literacy, from humane behavior? I don't know. I mean, I just wondered, what did, what did he do? So occasionally I'll, I'll really genuinely say, well, what policies do you think save people? And somebody might talk about a policy that for instance, Obama might have put into place and that he's taking credit for. And one of my own students said, look, let's give him credit for what he did during the pandemic. And I said to the student, respectfully, what did he do? And he said, don't you think he was handling it in the best way he possibly could? And I said, well, okay, let's go over this meticulously and try to separate fantasy from fiction, from reality from scientific fact, what do we really know as opposed to what's being supported and reported by the media and so forth? If you really want to deal with a pandemic, do you close 37 out of 47 pandemic centers? If there is a disease that you are being told is going to become a really horrific plague that's going to kill lots of people, do you downplay it in the media repeatedly for months and months and months? There are, I mean, really facts here that demonstrate 
that Trump was faced with some facts that he could have done something with, but instead chose repeatedly to downplay it, to downplay masking, to ridicule Fauci, to offer all sorts of not only nonsensical, but potentially lethal advice, offering Lysol injections and so forth. Um, By the way, that wasn't a joke. I mean, you look at the video of him saying this, there's no smile on his face. There's no irony. There's no humor. Not that he has a sense of humor to speak of, except when he's ridiculing people. But this was certainly not a joke. When he talks about, we're looking into this, but he's talking about Lysol injections and things like this. Yeah, it's utterly dangerous. And he is deliberately, repeatedly ignoring the scientists and the science in order to maintain some fantasy that we're turning the corner and this shouldn't be taken seriously and America is going to rise again, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, it's terrifying that even people like, you know, a couple of students who are, you know, they're smart kids, they're smart, they're well-educated, they're going to a good school. But despite the fact that there are these very specific kinds of facts that are demonstrating that somebody deliberately chose to ignore the science and deliberately chose to, again, close pandemic centers and made decisions that would be ultimately harmful rather than solving a problem, that people can still believe this stuff. It seems to me that it's not just Trump. The country tends to think the way he does. In other words, there is an epidemic of narcissism in this country. We have a narcissistic culture. And so if someone says, well, why don't you call the the South Koreans because they dealt with SARS and they know how to fight a pandemic and look what they're doing and look how successful they are at what they're doing. The tendency is to say, oh, no, America is the greatest. America is exceptional. We don't listen to South Koreans. Or you say, well, the Germans have developed this incredible test that seems to be working very well. Oh, no. We're going to develop our own test. We're not going to depend on the Germans' test. There was that kind of response, not just from Trump, but this response that, well, we know. We're American exceptionalists. We know. And so the New York Times reported that if we as a country had followed Seattle's plan, and remember, Seattle was ground zero at the beginning, if we had followed their plan, we would have saved 300,000 lives. Now, one can argue, well, you know, how do they know? But the fact is that we didn't. We ignored Seattle because they were blue state. And so is it getting away from Trump the man for a second and just looking at the United States response to the pandemic? It seemed that we were stumbling around with some bizarre fantasy we were living in a, in a fool's paradise. Yeah. Okay, Steve. But this is, again, why when I talk about somebody like my own students, again, they're smart, humane, kind people, right? They're not these kind of bloodthirsty, callous, incredibly wealthy CEOs or oil executives who treat other human beings as wildlife or something. So the question is, how could a decent, educated, intelligent human being support somebody's actions when there is so much evidence that those actions are either inept or self-serving and or contemptibly despicable. And so again, we're talking about people, I'm bringing them up specifically because they're not malicious people. They're not stupid people. 
they're not people who are living so in the backwater somewhere that they don't have access to this kind of information. They're not people who are living in communities where they're being hammered with misinformation by their peers who are saying, you must believe this or we're going to despise you. They're people who are living in fairly urban areas with lots and lots of people around them who have intelligent conversations, and yet they can still believe some of this stuff. Now, yeah, Steve, maybe some people do have that sense of narcissism and entitlement, but others are engaged in an idealizing process that needs to be parsed out. I mean, so many of our talks over the years, not just you and I, of course, but I mean, many of the other great people, Merlin Mowry and Dan Lickley and, all, and, and Sheldon and, and others have talked about the way in which people fantasize and fabricate toxic leaders. So as much as there is this person we call Trump who manifests all sorts of uh, kind of ludicrously, verbally inept, pussy-grabbing behavior and so forth, there are also the people who not only rationalize that stuff or don't see it, but still manage to sort of transform all of this stuff into the fantasy of some sort of Christ-like person chosen by God. Now, they don't have to be that extreme, of course. But I mean, in the course of the last four years, I've seen all sorts of signs, right? Again, Trump saved America. There was a sign outside of another house near Nyack where somebody had said women for Trump. There are all sorts of people who are going to manufacture and fantasize and create the leader, whatever the leader actually is, good or bad, right? Obama or Biden or Clinton or Trump or Churchill or anyone else, uh, whatever the reality is, the fantasy is a different thing. And it's not necessarily based on actual evidence. In many cases, it's based in a total rejection or sort of reinterpretation of the evidence. But there is a fantasy projection process involved in that leader. And that means that the person who is engaged in this also has to sort of decompensate and, and become less realistic and almost more infantile and dependent in order to put oneself into that kind of magical thinking whereby somebody becomes a savior and the glaring flaws are radically altered or rationalized and so forth. There is a very kind of weirdly delirious process here. And again, that's part of that whole scary phenomenon I was talking about earlier that we're so incredibly susceptible to self-deception and irrationality. As the psychiatrist R.D. Lang said, and I say R.D. Lang because the students these days think I'm talking about the comedian R.D. Lang, right? This this (laughs) psychiatrist R.D. Lang said, we have an almost unlimited capacity for self-deception. And again, it's not those uneducated, foolish morons over there, wherever the hell the over there is we're talking about. But part of being human is at least two varying degrees, because we're not identical, having this really bizarre capacity to be seduced by fantasies that resonate with our own and to manufacture a kind of reality out of our own yearnings and cravings and horrors and fears and everything else that manufacture something. And there is an apotheosis that doesn't come from the figure himself. It's not like he possesses that charisma and that power, but it's imparted to that leader. And um, we engage again in this fantasizing, denial, idealizing process. And it is so quintessentially human that while, again, people aren't identical in this regard, people experience this need, this craving more and less, depending on who they are and what their psychological constellations are. But it's very, very human for people to engage unwittingly in this kind of self-deceiving process. They want to make America great again. Oh, yeah. Wouldn't that be delightful? Jerry, how do you see white supremacy as a factor in people's preference for Donald Trump? Well, again, Ken, I talked about Beauvoir earlier and Beauvoir's second sex, where she has this interlude where she talks about the way in which 
certain people who experience that sense of abjection, who feel deprived, who feel ashamed of themselves and unhappy and jealous and miserable and frustrated, very human kinds of feelings, who can engage in these kinds of fantasies that enable them to feel some sense of transformation and triumph. If they can be superior to others, if they can invent and fantasize and fabricate an enemy, if they can target an enemy, they can transform their own ignominy and abjection into some sort of heroic apotheosis. They can feel that they're not the inferior, dejected, insignificant ones. They can feel that they're better than other people. They are meaningful. They are substantial. They're not just nobodies. They are the patriots. They are the chosen by God or by the president. They are meaningful. They're not just nobodies. It is a radical reversal whereby they can redeem themselves from their own feelings of helplessness and insignificance. Wow, um, that's, yeah, that explains why they choose names like the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers, right? Indeed. I mean, it's um, right. Yeah. Yeah. And so this fantasy of apotheosis or patriotism of being meaningful, significant people doing something that is epic and cosmic and for the good rather than just angry people getting together like the angry he-man women-hating club or something like this, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. So there is that kind of fantasy that, that transforms abjection into some sort of specialness and heroic purpose. But furthermore, there's, I mean, there is a specificity to the nature of that white supremacy and the targeting. It's not just that anybody will do for a target. Yeah, I mean, it, chances are they're going to invent a target if one doesn't exist. But I mentioned before Warren's book. I didn't mention the book. I talked about Warren and talking about metaphysical holocaust and so forth. He has this fascinating book he wrote a few years ago called Ontological Terror, in which he makes the case from a Heideggerian perspective, which of course means it's going to be abstruse and incomprehensible, but it's actually a brilliant book. I love it. And Warren says that, look, it's not just that people are racist or white supremacist because they're ignorant or they're prejudiced or they've been brought up with misinformation and they don't know any better. If we look at the systematic torturing, enslavement, subjugation, and killing of Black bodies and Black souls, then we should understand that what's going on here is an attempt to annihilate Black being. And being, he capitalizes to indicate that it's not just physical being, it's existential being, it's the soul, right? There's a need to render somebody else emotionally subjugated and emotionally humiliated and abject. And from Warren's point of view, the reason why there is this white kind of supremacy is really it is a fantasy that enables people to respond to the blackness that they consider utterly horrifying, terrifying, and intimidating. He says that basically for many, not all, but for many white people, blackness is some sort of horror of annihilation. Wow. Blackness, blackness to him is death and negation. That black body, that black intellect is potentially superior. It is intellectually, uh, sexually, ontologically a menace to my significance as a being. That yeah. other represents the diminution and eradication of my being. And my own terror and intimidation and fear that this person embodies my annihilation and death requires that I then fantasize my superiority and morally justify their execration and humiliation. Now, I'm trying to summarize Warren's book because it is so complicated and fascinating. 
But it again, it moves the discourse from people just being misinformed or being ignorant as if they were told as children, yeah, black people are evil and they're bad and they're ghetto and all this kind of stuff, right? It's not just about sort of people misunderstanding. It's not just a matter of ignorance. It's a matter of this sort of existential, ontological horror at another's potential for destroying my significance as a being such that I have a need to belittle and vanquish them and make them suffer and prove my worth by showing how detestable they are, execrating, annihilating their being as the beings that can potentially threaten me with annihilation and death. So if they dilute this white utopia that we've created here yeah, on this continent, if we allow more brown people to cross the border, if we intermarry with people of color, do we dilute this, I hate to use the word Aryan, but you know this white supreme race that we have here, it's a threat to me as a person because you're taking away something from me that I identify with. Well, Steve, on the surface, it's taking away something like jobs and money and opportunity and all that sort of stuff. And, and right. that, may be, that may be a legitimate anxiety for some people, but not for all. And so let's understand that that may be sort of on the manifest content on the surface and that on, at least for some people on a much deeper level, there is, again, the ontological threat to my being, to my specialness as a person with this other person replacing me and diminishing my existence. Can I tell you a tiny anecdote? To uh -huh. What I'm saying? Yeah, of course. All right. So a couple of years ago, I went to a, a conference in California, which, as you know, by knowing me is an excuse to rent a bicycle and ride somewhere beautiful. <laughs> and so um, so I stayed with my friend who lived in Fort Bragg and I decided, yeah, you know, I, I want to rent a bike and ride through the redwood forests, you know. So I went from Fort Bragg, I don't know, to some village 50 miles away. And as I was on the way riding through the redwoods, I stopped to get some water. In this place, it was in the middle of nowhere, you know, I mean, miles and miles of redwoods and it's gorgeous. And I stopped there and I, there were four Hispanic gentlemen at a table and I, I stopped and I said, oh, do you know where the restroom is? And they pointed to it. And then as I started to walk away, one of them said, don't worry, man, we won't steal your bike. And, oh. and I kind of, and I laughed, I laughed, you know, and I said, why would you think that? And he says, oh, you know, man, because we're different, right? And, and I thought that was really funny. And he, and he says, where are you from? And I said, oh, well, I'm. Uh, I'm from I'm from New York, but I'm riding. Uh, I've come 37 miles, and he says, "Oh, you come from Fort Bragg?" And, yeah, yeah, yeah. He says, "How do you like it?" And I say, "Well, people are different here." And he says, "You mean they're brown?" <laughs> and I said, "I said no, man. I'm from New York. Brownness is what you know everywhere, right? I love brownness. Yeah, man. I mean, New York is a diversity of cultures. You get to see all different foods and sounds and people and languages, and yeah, we love it. You know, that's what I love about New York." I said, "No, man. What's different about being here?" is that not a single car has honked at me or tried to run me over in 37 miles. Nobody has screamed at me or menaced me or tried to run me off the road. That's what's different, man. And, and, he, and they were laughing at that. So I go to the bathroom, I come back. And as I'm coming back to chat with them, there are a couple of guys who get out of a truck and there are a bunch of white guys in flannel with baseball hats. And then they, they look like stereotypes, but you know that's just part of the joke, right? And the guys kind of give them the, the Hispanic gents the eye. And I say, do they know you? And these guys say, oh, yeah, they know us and they tolerate us, but they don't really like us. And I said, well, what do you mean? I said, look, we work hard and we go to the bars afterwards for a few beers and they really don't want us there. I mean, they don't beat us up, but they don't want us here. And I said, well, what's the problem? And they said, well, 
basically they're afraid that we're gonna we're gonna take over and i'm like the four of you are going to take over what are you going to do take over the logging industry or something and they said well look obviously we're not but they have this anxiety that we in particular we of the brown color are going to somehow swarm them and take over like some sort of a plague or a disease and i said you know man i don't know how i could live with that i mean i'm just hearing you talk about how much they don't like you and it's making me uncomfortable it's making me really scared and upset on your behalf that you're sitting here doing your thing and working hard and working for your families and they don't like you. And how must that feel to have them always look at you askance and, and with such malice? And one of them says then, hey man, we're working hard. We're making money. We're feeding our families. We're being successful. We're winning. <laughs> and I thought that was so incredibly funny. And I wow. love the what I loved, the, Steve, what yeah. I really loved about this was that despite the fact that these guys experienced that kind of hostility and alienation and disrespect and that kind of, of malignance and alienation every day, despite that, these guys were incredibly funny and life-affirming and were not bitter about it. Because I'm sitting there listening to them for five minutes, feeling angry on their behalf. Yeah, they're actually capable of of joy and aren't being wounded by it. Now I love that, and I thought, yeah, I wish I could be like these guys <laughs> because I I get frustrated and bitter and freaked out when that kind of stuff happens. They weren't self deceived though, were they? They understood exactly what was going on. Yeah, they weren't pretending that if they were just nice enough and worked hard enough, that suddenly we'd all be living in in a, you know some sort of kumbaya like situation where it's peace and love and joy and and everybody holding hands together in a coca-cola commercial it was um very clear to them that i mean not all people they didn't expect all people to hate them they didn't see me as some sort of enemy who hated them either it wasn't like they were globally saying white people hate us no they were just saying look the, we realize the fact that these are human beings they're scared of us they're intimidated they don't really know us and they treat us as we're inhuman but we cannot let that determine our sense of pleasure or joy in life. I find that yeah, fascinating and commendable because I, I'm not sure if I could do it. But what, again, is fascinating is not only their capability for joy and life affirmation, but the way in which the guys who, who had this kind of malignant attitude toward them really felt that by virtue of being brown, they were innately, ontologically despicable and evil and some sort of menace to existence. And so, again, whether we're talking about Warren's ontological terror, whether we're talking about blackness, whether we're talking about Beauvoir's second sex and the way in which men are terrified and intimidated by women, we're finding that another human being could potentially not only be the fantasy projection of one's own inner terrors and fears, but that the other person can sort of become the ontological representation of death to another person psychologically, such that they are hated as some threat to my existence, which I think is fascinating and worth adding to the language of prejudice. Jerry, how do we improve our lives and our society through a better understanding of political fantasy and illusion? Oh, man, you are asking the wrong guy. Um, <laughs> um, <laughs> You're the only guy we got here. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, I would advise anybody, uh, friends and students and colleagues and anybody to 
take Nietzsche's advice and consider the possibility that all of your own beliefs and certainties may be illusions, not just in principle, not just give it, uh, not just pretend, not the, the, as if that, that makes you humble, but genuinely consider the possibility that you really might be deceiving yourself so that you have enough concern with ideas to really delve into it and it, to, to say, look, I really don't know what's going on. I think I figured a couple things out, but I could well be fooling myself. I'm sure some of these things fantasize my needs. Let me let me break out of my own convictions and dogmas and certainties and try to learn something new that makes me realize how complicated things are, that I haven't figured it out, that, that there's more to learn and more to learn from other people. What a wonderful possibility if you could be a student to really have other people open up your ideas and consider that your own ideas are sort of gossamer fantasies. I don't know anybody like that, Jerry. Everybody, <laughs> everybody is so certain. How do we get to that? I agree with you a thousand percent. How do we get there? Well, you know, I, I asked my father that a couple months ago. I was talking about certainty with my father, especially during the COVID era. I was at his house and he said, you don't look incredibly comfortable. And I said, well, yeah, even if I've been isolating and even if I'm wearing a mask, I can't be absolutely certain that I'm not asymptomatic or presymptomatic. And I can't be absolutely sure that I'm not potentially endangering somebody. And there is this epistemological question. How much would I have to know? How certain could I be before I could be comfortable knowing I'm not going to potentially kill somebody? in a situation like this, because this is not a situation where you might occasionally affect people. We're talking about hundreds of thousands of people at that time who died and many, many more people who were suffering long-term symptoms. And he said, look, there's very little you can be sure of in this life. So you have to go through life fundamentally saying, yeah, I don't know. It's all, it's all play. It's all the possibility of new ideas complicating things and being wrong. And you can't take it personally. You have to enjoy the pleasure of having your ideas change and, and be fluid, be open to new ideas as new nourishment. Chances are you're going to be wrong about a hell of a lot. And it's okay. It doesn't mean that you're an idiot or a fool or a waste of time. If you're wrong, it's just an opportunity for you as a human being to soak in new things and enjoy the hell out of it. And he said, but there is one thing you can be certain of, one thing in life you can be certain of. And I said, oh, I, I can't wait to hear this. What's this? And my dad said, well, you can be certain that your mother and I love you. And I said, that's, that's stunning because um, I'd never heard anything like that before. And I said, well, dad, I, I love that. Um, and I love the fact that you're going through life saying that you can see the fluidity of ideas as uh, something new to soak in, to constantly change and 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 feel nourishment from ideas. But yes, yeah, Steve, as you said, it's incredibly rare. And in order to really internalize that, we again have to kind of consider comically the likelihood that we're just so wrong about so many things and and uh, treat ourselves as, as sort of village idiots with dunce caps half the time because we're going to be, not to take it so personally. And Ken and I on this strange journey we, we embarked on doing this podcast we keep coming up against new ideas and new ways of thinking about them. And it's humbling, but it's also a challenge to keep saying, I've got to readjust my thinking now. I've got to now internalize what we've just learned and then and respond 
you know, make the necessary, the, make the necessary adjustments. And yeah. Keep they, going. Right. Absolutely. And keep going. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So the trick then is not to worry about so much of what is actually true, but to worry about why you need something to be true. Right. That's yeah. true enough. Well, listen, Jerry, this has been a tremendous conversation again. Thank you so much. We really appreciate your being here. Folks, we've been enjoying another conversation with Dr. Jerry Piven, the psychologist. And thank you so much for being our guest, Jerry. Oh, thanks so much. I hope I made the tiniest jot of sense amid my uh, incoherent uh, ramblings. <laughs> no, you, did, you did way better than that. Right. And oh, the coherence oh. was much better this time. <laughs> thank you so much. Take care. Thanks, Jerry. Oh, thank, thank you, guys. Bye-bye. You've been listening to an interview with psychologist Jerry Piven discussing political fantasy, illusion, and our American society. Steve, what's your takeaway? Well, Jerry gave us one of the most thought-provoking discussions we've had so far, I think. Did he ever, and is he prone to doing that? Yeah, man. Well, he started out by saying that we like to think we're rational beings, that we know what we think and have control over our thoughts, not that our thoughts are randomly determined by various things we're not aware of. But you brought up Yuval Noah Harari, and he talked about Drew Weston and Jonathan Haidt, or Haidt, and TMT research. And it's all telling us this is an illusion on our parts. We all have what Jerry says, post hoc rationalization for decisions that have already been made. In other words, we get an idea, a belief, or a feeling due to things like our upbringing, death anxiety, or ideology, and we find the data and facts to support what we've already decided and ignore what contradicts our preconceived idea. Now, this is not an idea that's foreign to us. Indeed, no, but it is quite upsetting. Mm -hmm. And who's guilty of this? Probably every human on the planet. And that's why we're easily manipulated by arousing our fears and knee-jerk reactions. Jerry says, and that utterly calls into question not only our rationality, but our very free will. It calls into question what we think. Man. Yeah, what Jerry calls very scary, and I think rightfully so. Especially the part about free will. I know it. So he says... We have to have enough humility to recognize that we're not nearly as rational or in control of our thoughts as we think or would like to believe. I like that. It's a question of humility. Yeah, me too. But here's one that made our jaws drop. He said, part of the problem is we're not in control of what we believe. We don't know why we believe it. We think it's reality and we just can't control it. And since we are self-deceived, then it's very difficult for us to say, I am rationally going to choose the most life-affirming illusion I can find, because if we're really being self-deceptive, then it's very difficult for us to rationally know what is actually going to be life-affirming instead of potentially harmful to others. He's right. We don't know. At least, we can't be sure. Yeah, I, I really find this very disturbing notion, and I'm still thinking about it. 
I know. Well, that's the problem, too, because you'd like to stop and think about it for a half an hour, but instead, we, Jerry goes right on. You know, we're in an interview. Well, he is a college professor. Well, there's that. So anyway, Jerry talked about the French existentialist Simone de Beauvoir, author of The Second Sex, who said that certain people who experience a sense of abjection, who feel deprived and feel ashamed of themselves and unhappy and jealous and miserable and frustrated, all very human kinds of feelings, engage in certain kinds of fantasies that enable them to feel some sense of transformation and triumph. And Jerry takes it into the present and relates this idea to our fellow Americans who need to feel superior to others. Well, most of us do, I guess. Saying, if they can invent and fantasize and fabricate an enemy, they can transform their own ignominy and objection into some sort of heroic apotheosis. They can feel that they're not the inferior, insignificant ones. They can feel that they're better than other people. They are meaningful. They're substantial. They're not just nobodies. They are the patriots. They are the chosen by God or by the president. They are meaningful. It's a radical reversal whereby they can redeem themselves from their own feelings of helplessness and insignificance. Yeah, that's a mouthful. And I'm wondering, Steve, does everyone know what the word apotheosis means? Jerry mm. has quite the vocabulary. True. Uh, apo- apotheosis is the highest point in the development of something. It's culmination or climax. With Jerry, you sometimes need a dictionary handy. Sometimes. I almost always need a dictionary handy with him. <laughs> right. So in the same vein, talking about white supremacy, Jerry says... It's not just a matter of ignorance. It's a matter of this sort of existential, ontological horror at another's potential for destroying my significance of being, such that I have a need to belittle and vanquish them and make them suffer to prove my worth. By showing how detestable they are, annihilating their being as beings that can potentially threaten me with annihilation and death. There's more vocabulary for that section, I guess, if you want to add it. Yes. Ontological means relating to or based on being or existence, and existential means affirming or implying the existence of a thing. So this concept that he's introducing, which is a little different from what we heard from Henry Richards, but I think that I don't think it contradicts Henry, but it's a very powerful analysis of where white supremacy could be coming from. Not for everybody, certainly, not not all white supremacists, not all racists, but it certainly is something to think about when you're thinking about white supremacy. Yep. So, once again, Jerry had a personal story about interacting with fellow humans, also very charming. And then he offered this advice from Nietzsche. He said, consider the possibility... All of your own beliefs and certainties may be illusions, not just in principle, not just pretend as if that makes you humble, but genuinely consider the possibility that you really might be deceiving yourself and to say, look, I really don't know what's going on. I think I figured a couple things out, but I could well be fooling myself. 
let me break out of my own convictions and dogmas and certainties and try to learn something new that makes me realize how complicated things are, that I haven't figured it out, that there's more to learn and more to learn from other people, and consider that your own ideas are sort of gossamer fantasies. I love that phrase. I do gossamer. too, and that's that, that's a tall order for a lot of people to uh, well, take that yes. much humility and question that much of what they believe. Yes. And Jerry concluded with a really touching thought from, in the words of his 95-year-old father. He said, you have to go through life fundamentally saying, I don't know. It's all play. It's all the possibility of new ideas complicating things and then being wrong. And you can't take it personally. You have to enjoy the pleasure of having your ideas change and be fluid. Be open to new ideas as to new nourishment. Chances are you're going to be wrong about a hell of a lot, and that's okay. It doesn't mean that you're an idiot or a fool or a waste of time or if you're wrong. It's just an opportunity for you as a human being to soak in new things and enjoy the hell out of it. Words to live by. Yeah. Important ideas, Steve. Well, folks, join us next time like us on Facebook, please recommend us to your friends. You can find us at www.thehubforimportantideas.com. And support us on Patreon at www.patreon.com front slash the hub important ideas. We continue to be 100% listener supported. And thank you for listening to the hub for important ideas. I'm Steve James. And I'm Ken Swain. Stay safe, everybody. Stay well.